ask, I'm going to begin my message by asking you a question. And my question is, how would you describe your life over the last 18 or 19 months? If I said, tell me, what has your life been like since COVID was introduced into our culture? What would you tell me? How would you describe the last year and a half? You know, what, what parts of the story would you tell me? And what parts of the story would you leave out? Would there be any heroes in the story that you would tell me? Or would there be any villains in the story that you would tell me? What parts would you highlight and what parts would you just embarrassing leave out of the story? Would you tell me just the good or would you tell me the bad? Or what would the mixture be? See, what part of the story that you would tell me is very telling? I mean, in one way, it does give me information on what life has been like for you the last year and a half. But it also would show me, what are your expectations? What do you expect? By the story that you tell, you tell people your expectations or maybe your lack of expectations. See, if we go back to high school, you go back to literature class in high school, you might remember something that we called the arc of a story. Or some of you might remember that every story, every movie, every good book follows a certain structure. Back in the 19th century, there was a man by the name of Gustav Freytag. And he came up with Freytag's pyramid of a good story. It was a structure that he observed that all good stories and all movies had these key components to. He didn't invent the structure. He was just observing the trend in good books and he was describing what it's like. So it doesn't matter if you're talking about a Pixar movie or you're talking a best-selling author. Most authors in all books follow this typical arc or as Freytag talked about it, they follow this pyramid structure. He boiled it down to five key components of a good story. Actually, he had seven. But we're going to kind of, but then a lot of people boil it down to five. So we're going to do five today since this is not literature class, it's a church service. So according to Freytag, that all, that all good books and movies, they start out here with an exposition. So you're in the bottom of the pyramid and here's the expo exposition where you're going to start developing characters. You're going to develop the scenery so people can kind of see, okay, what is this book going to be about? Then soon after that, you go rising up in what's called the rising action. And it's at this point that you begin to see maybe a little bit of the controversy emerge or maybe the, the, what the, the storyline is going to be about. Maybe a little conflict is going to emerge. So you're rising up in what's called the rising action and then you get to the top place, which is the climax or it's the place of the greatest tension. This is where the story is. This is what has to be resolved. It's good versus is evil, bad versus good, or it could be one person against another person, and it's at this point that the big conflict is in the movie. And then what happens is a lot of people are transformed at the conflict, and we start having what is called the falling action, where you see the characters that were transformed by the conflict start to play out the rest of the story, and then at the very end, stage five, is the denouement, which is French for the ending. It's the conclusion. Each story, each good movie, it contains one of these five elements. And what happens for a lot of people is when they tell their story, they get stuck at the first three elements. They talk about the character development, they talk about the rising action, and they talk about the conflict, but they never go past conflict to see any kind of resolution or ending. 
I think you know those kind of people. When you listen to their story, it's always a conflict. It's always a problem. It's always a difficult time. But you never see resolution in their story. I think we need to be really careful right now as a community, as people and individuals. We need to be really careful because I think a lot of people look at what's happening in our culture because of COVID and we think it's the resolution. I think we're still stuck in the big conflict right now. And we need to be really careful what we are observing and what story that we are telling. Because we are still in the midst of a conflict and we haven't seen the resolution yet come because of COVID. And I think that's why it's so important that we as a community and individuals take prayer and intercession very serious right now. Because I think a lot of people in our country think we are now in resolution mode and we're still stuck in conflict. And I think we as a body of Christ need to be praying more now than maybe we ever have been during this pandemic to see some resolution come, to see people transformed by the conflict that has happened so they can become the people that God's created them to be. Instead, what we're seeing now, instead of we're seeing people transformed by the conflict of the story, we're seeing people emerge from this pandemic more disappointed now than they have ever been before in their entire life. It seems like there's disappointed people everywhere and it's not just our country, it's in the nations of the world. Some people are renaming the era that we're in right now, they're calling it the great resignation because people are quitting. People are quitting their jobs, they're quitting their careers. Sociologists are noticing people are even just splitting from marriages that have been going on for a while just because they're disappointed with life and they're looking for something different. One survey shows that 95% of Americans are unhappy with their current position or their current job and they want a new job and they don't care if they leave the industry. They just want to do something different. A study recently came out in the UK of Brits and it showed that 8% of the, Brit <clears throat> the Brits in the UK wanted to go back to life as normal before COVID. That means 92% of Brits are saying, I want something completely different than we've ever had before. People are unsatisfied and people are unsettled. And that's okay because sometimes when you go through that climatic story, it does create an unsettling in you. It does create a desire and anticipation for something different and that is okay. But I think sometimes you're seeing people are just remaining stuck in disappointment and they're not sure what they're really looking for. And they're looking for what only Jesus can satisfy in other places. And I think it's important for us to be in tune with our dissatisfaction right now. What is really making you dissatisfied? And what would bring you any joy right now? It's hard right now. Because it requires a lot of faith to get through the season we're in in this country. It probably requires more faith than some people probably have ever had to put out there before. It's difficult to believe that our country could emerge from this crisis that we're in. It's difficult to believe that maybe we could get beyond the political unrest. It's difficult to believe that maybe we could have some true, authentic racial reconciliation. It's hard to believe that stuff right now. 
But we need to pray for that to happen. So I want to ask you another question. And this question is, how do you live in the midst of so much uncertainty? How do you live during a pandemic? How do you live through so much disappointment? How do you live through so much political unrest? How do you live when you thought this pandemic would be way over by now and would be way moved on by now? See, my guess is how you would respond to that question of how do you live through much uncertainty is a very different answer today than it probably would have been two years ago. Because we have all had to live through a lot of uncertainty the last two years. See, the biggest challenge is that we are facing is uncertainty. And uncertainty brings along its very close companion, and that is powerlessness. A lot of people's disappointment is coupled with uncertainty and powerlessness. And it's been difficult in our culture for people to figure out and navigate how to live. See, developmental psychologists will call this transitional place that we're in right now, they'll call it the liminal space. It's a word that comes from a Latin word meaning threshold or doorway. A liminal space is the place between what was and what's next. It's a great place to transition. It's a season of waiting and not knowing and not knowing at all how the story is going to conclude. But this is very important. Liminal space is where transformation takes place. If we wait and let it transform us, we're all in a transformation place right now. We're all in a place of transformation right now. What is a transformation going to look like when we come out the other side? Is it going to be for our good? Or is it going to be not for our benefit? That's the risk at hand. What is your transformation going to look like? See, we've all heard the phrase, when God closes one door, he opens another door. I think we've all heard it many, many times. A couple years ago, I think I I quoted another similar statement to that, and that's what Joseph Garlington says. He says, when God closes at one door, he opens another door, but it sure can be like hell in the hallway. And I think that's what we're experiencing right now. A lot of discomfort in this hallway. A lot of discomfort in this transitional place. A lot of uncertainty, a lot of frustration. But so often these hallways are so strategic for transformation. Sometimes these hallways are the best place that you can be at. You see that with Joseph that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Joseph lived in that hallway of prison. Between his family abandoning him before the time that God used him as he promised, he had a long hallway experience and it was difficult. The children of Israel, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, which is kind of like their hallway to prepare them. We see Jesus was in that hallway of 40 days and 40 nights fasting and praying, that time that would transform him. We see Paul had a metamorphosis in his life, a change in his life when he had that blindness happen for, him for three days and that was a hallway of discouragement for him but yet he gained his sight during that time. 
Usually these hallways, these liminal spaces in our life are a very good thing, even though we don't like them one bit. They can often provide us rest. They can provide us a time to prepare for what God has next for us. But these hallway places are also a good time to look back and to see what God has actually already done in your life to see the gains that you have made in your life, to see the transformation that you have already experienced. These liminal spaces can be so good for us. And I know you're like, yeah, I believe that, but yet it's hard to believe that because a lot of us just feel discouraged and frustrated and hopeless. I think at times like this, it's so good to remember what James says in James 1.3. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And then the Apostle Paul picks that up in Romans 5 and he says, and endurance produces character and character produces hope. We're getting a lot of endurance right now. God's producing a lot of hope in us right now. God is building a lot of character in us right now. A lot of good thing is happening in us right now. As much as we don't like the hallways, this is where we see God often developing His plan and purpose in our life. These hallways are filled with opportunity. But we got to wait. We got to wait and not get impatient right now. There's a famous sought-out storyteller in Hollywood. Her name is Babette Buster. She's known as a professor of story. She's a sought-out consultant for the big movie theaters, and, and they will ask her to look at their storyline and help them navigate it or tweak it. And she has this famous saying where she says, all good stories have two key components. There has to be reinvention, and there has to be a story of redemption. She says every good movie needs to have reinvention and redemption or the movie will be a flop. Our lives need reinvention and redemption as well or they will be a flop. I think right now what we're seeing is people being reinvented to be the people we are always called to be. God's reinventing us so we can be the image of Jesus we're supposed to be. He's bringing restoration to us. He's bringing redemption to us in this difficult season so that our life story isn't a flop. So we can reflect the image of God. But we need to wait to have patience right now as God is transforming us. Therefore, I think it is so important that we answer the question of how do you live through much, so much uncertainty? Because if, there's a, because if you can't answer that question, there's a good chance that you might be dealing with uncertainty in a way that you don't want to be dealing with it. If you're not really sure how you deal with so much uncertainty, it might be because you are dealing with it by becoming very controlling or becoming a very controlling person. And I say that from experience, not to pick on any person here. See, 
being a controlling person can often be like having very bad breath. You never know you have it, but everybody else knows that you do. And what happens with bad breath is the people close to you start pulling away from you because they don't know how to talk to you about your controllingness or because they don't know how you're going to respond. And often the people that are closest to you just have to kind of learn to put up with it. And I think it's good for us right now in this season of so much uncertainty to really examine ourselves and say, do I respond to uncertainty by being very controlling? Is that my go-to? See, there's a lot of problems with being controlling, but one of the biggest problems with being controlling is that it doesn't work well with faith. Faith and control have a hard time being in the room at the same time. If you're controlling, a lot of your faith is gone. And if you have a lot of faith, then a lot of times you see your control leave the room. I was reading a book by John Mark Comer this week, and he talked about faith is not only incompatible with control, but also hope and love don't work well with control either. He brings up in his book that faith doesn't work well with control because controlling people don't live with a deep sense of trust and steady confidence in God's goodness involvement in their, in their life. Instead, you always live on edge, kind of worried, what's next? What's going to happen next? And you're not able to just rest and say, you know what? God's going to work this out. And sometimes control doesn't work well with hope either because controlling people are not full of hope for God's future, but rather they live in the vicious cycle of planning followed by disappointments. We know what happens when you get so disappointed. You're hoping something's going to happen. It doesn't happen the way you wanted it to. It can be just so discouraging unless your hope is grounded in your faith. And then control doesn't work well with love either because controlling people sometimes aren't very loving. They can easily become a bully because they want to control everybody and every situation around them. And when things don't go their way, they get pretty upset. I think one of the best examples of how control and faith don't work well together is when the Israelites were in the desert. You might remember the story, the Israelites were in the desert and God said, I will take care of every single one of your needs. I will be your presence. I will be with you. I will guide you by the fire and by the cloud. And he said to them, I'll provide all the food that you need as well. You don't need to have to go to the store. I'll deliver it right outside. You go outside and you get the manna that you need miraculously provided everything they needed but what happens when you don't have a lot of faith or control gets in the way or your insecurity gets in the way happened to the israelites they started grumbling and complaining and then they started thinking well what if what if god doesn't provide one day what do we do what if we do if we don't have enough so what was their answer well we'll just go out one day and we'll get more than what we need for the day God told them, no, you go out every day and you get the food that you need for that day. Well, the Israelites decided, well, we'll, we'll, we'll plan ahead. We'll bring out our, we'll, we'll take more than is needed. And what happened to them when they took more that was needed? All that extra food that they got spoiled. It went rotten. See, that's what happens when we try to control God. It spoils it all. It spoils the plans. Instead, God's saying, would you just trust me to take care of you? Would you trust me through this difficult situation? 
Powerlessness is hard. The inability to control things, not knowing what's going to happen next, this unpredictability that is happening in our culture is so hard for us. And I'll be the first to admit, it's hard for me. It's hard for me not to become controlling and over-controlling. It's good for me to remember every day it's one of those things to surrender to Jesus and say, I need your help so I don't become or act more controlling today. And Jesus is always faithful when we surrender. It takes a lot of courage right now to really trust in God right now that he is working all things together for good. It does take a lot right now. So I think one of the hardest parts of being a follower of Jesus is actually following Jesus. I don't think it's too hard to believe the story of Jesus, and a lot of people do believe that Jesus was born, died on the cross to save us from our sins, and went to heaven. Most people have no hard time believing that, but when you ask them to actually follow Jesus, that's where it becomes difficult. That was the illustration with the rich, rich young ruler that we saw in the gospel. He had no problem saying to Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? But when Jesus told him to actually follow him, that was a little bit too much for him. And he couldn't do it. So how do we live with so much uncertainty? I want to close my message today and talk about Psalm 23. This amazing chapter of the Bible is a perfect representation of who Jesus is. And because it represents Jesus, it's a picture that represents what this communion table is all about today. So let me read Psalm 23. It says, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valleys, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. See, this is a beautiful psalm that gives us great comfort. But the psalm also follows that arc of a story, or it follows Freytag's observation of his pyramid. And I think if you dissect this psalm, looking at it from the pyramid structure, you can see a lot of power in this psalm and what this psalm is trying to transform us into. See, the very first opening is, The Lord is my shepherd. That's the expo- exposition of the story. That's the characters are developed here where God is saying to us, Jesus is your shepherd. He's the one who volunteered to give his life for you so that he could lead you. You are his sheep. He promises to protect you, to guide you, to cover you, to lead you in the right path. That's the beginning, the exposition of the story. That's the character. That's where we are. We are the sheep. And then you see the rising action with that line that says, I lack nothing. This begins to be the conflict of this psalm. Because it starts raising the question, will I really lack nothing? If I follow Jesus, will I really lack nothing? Because I think sometimes we're not exactly sure. And so you see right here, here's the rising action of the story. Will I lack nothing? 
And then another question emerges as we're in this rising action and in the sentence of verse 2 and 3 of He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for His name's sake. You see that, that action there of how God says, this is how I'll take, I'll take care of you. Because the question is, will you take care of me? He says, yeah, this is how I will. I'll give you everything you need to drink and I'll give you all the food that you need. I'm going to provide for you that way. And it's this beautiful, beautiful picture that he's showing us. And then there's that phrase in there that's a little awkward that says, he makes me lie down. You're like, is he going to force me to lie down? Is that just God's strategy? Okay, now you, you sleep. That's not what he's talking about there. This, that, that, that statement of he makes me lie down, that's, that's, that's called the causative statement in the Hebrew. That means that this is cause and effect statement. It's not like anybody's forcing you to do anything. See, what the scripture is saying is that when God takes care of you by his grace and by his mercy and by his peace, it is naturally going to cause you to relax and to lie down and rest. What that scripture is saying, you are going to be so overwhelmed by the goodness of God and the grace of God that you will naturally rest. It's kind of like when somebody serves you a really, really good meal. Nobody has to tell you to take a second bite. That first bite was really good. You want more. And that's what this psalm is saying. You're going to be so overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of God that you are going to just relax quietly. But still, that's that emerging conflict. Will God really take care of every one of my needs? And really, will I like the grass and the water that he gives to me? And then we get to verse 4. Verse 4 is the climax that is on top of the pyramid that says, even though I walk through the darkest valley. It's like, wait a minute. How did I get to that dark valley? That's not where I wanted to go. If you're the good shepherd, you should lead me around the dark valley. If you're the good shepherd, we shouldn't have to go through that time of difficulty. And that's the climax of this psalm right here. Is he really a good shepherd if you're stuck in that dark valley? Some other translations call it the valley of the shadow of death. That's the climax of this psalm. What do we believe about God when we are in that valley? Is he really the God that's going to provide for us? Or do I need to figure out how to provide for myself because I really am dissatisfied right now? And I think i got to figure something else out because I don't know if I'm feeling that satisfied following this shepherd right now. We all know that going through these difficult times is good for you. We know that these liminal spaces are good. We know that these hallways of transition are good for you. But it's hard to be in that place. See, these hallway periods, what they tend to do is they draw out our enemies. They draw out the things we don't like about ourselves. They usually draw out our ugliness. A lot of times we just start focusing on all the external enemies that we don't like to distract us. But the truth is, these difficult seasons sometimes draw out the worst things in us. And that's what God is trying to see us delivered from in these dark valleys and these liminal spaces. That's the conflict of this hour. 
is how do we deal with those things inside of us that are ugly? Do we distract ourselves by looking at other people's ugly? Or do we look at our own and say, I got a little problem here. See, remember that the point of the conflict in the pyramid was to develop the characters so they could fight against the conflict that was at hand. We're going through a hard time right now so God can develop us so we can walk in freedom from the enemies that we have. Conflict is character development. We need to see our character develop so we can have the resolution that we want. See, it was in that liminal space that David said, I do not fear. Even David said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That's the conflict for us. Do I really feel fear no evil when I'm in that liminal space? And then the next verse we start to see the falling action or we start seeing the transformation of the characters. In verse 5 it says, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. This is such a transformation verse. Up from verse 1 through 4, it's sheep and a shepherd. And suddenly now you have people going to a table with their king. There was such a transformation that happened in the first four verses. Now in verse 5, you see the transformation where the king comes and he prepares a table for everybody to come and have a banquet at. Back in the Gospels, Jesus would describe himself as a servant. I came to serve, and it was the Greek word for deacon, which is very similar to be the one who came to be the waiter. In this verse, you see Jesus is transformed from the shepherd to the one that's going to wait on you at the table. And that's what we are going to celebrate today. We're going to celebrate communion today. We're going to celebrate that Jesus has invited us to this table to have fellowship with him. We're celebrating that God has created this table and he has called us by name to sit at this table with him. And the transformation that you see in verse 5 is he anoints my head with oil, which is a sign that he's going to heal you. He's going to restore you. That's that reinvention and restoration that every good story needs. And your cup overflows. It goes back to the verse 1. Do you really believe God's going to supply all your needs? And through the transformation, you say, yeah, he supplies it so well that I have more than I really need. And the final resolution comes in verse 6. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is the final resolution. That's coming someday. But for now, we get to sit at the table with Jesus. 
And our enemies don't get to sit there. Our enemies can watch us there, but they don't get to be at the table with us. See, the beautiful thing is when you're having communion with Jesus, your enemies aren't at the table. They stay away. That's why fellowship with Jesus is so important. That's why taking the time to read your Bible is so important. That's why study, that's why silence and solitude are so important. Because when you're at this table, when you're in fellowship, your enemies have to stay away and watch. They don't get to sit at this table. So today I want to invite you to this table to remember the reinvention that is happening in our lives of being transformed to the image of God but also to remember the restoration that God gives us to enable us to believe that he is our shepherd and supplies every single thing we need. And that's why we come today to partake of the wine and the bread that were representations of the life that Jesus gave for us so that we could be restored and restoried into the people that God has created us to be. That's the beauty of communion, is that we fellowship with Jesus and our enemies stay away. So please join me today in this powerful time of celebrating communion, of celebrating what Jesus has done for us. And I think if you were able to get your elements on the way in, could you get your cup? And if you don't have them, Ron will uh, gladly serve any of you. Did anybody need elements? Just raise your up. Oh. Got to take her in the front row, and Lori, and I, I need one as well. Thank you. And if you're at home and watching, you know, please, if you have a little grape juice or a little water would do or a little piece of a cracker, we want to we celebrate this together. We want to remember, as Paul says, we remember. We do this in remembrance. Thank you, Ron. We do this in remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. Let me read 1 Corinthians 11, Paul's words. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's a powerful. But today as we participate, I want us to proclaim that we really believe that God will supply all of our needs. I might take an extra faith to believe that God will really supply everything I need. That when I follow him, he is going to be faithful to supply everything. So let's peel this little piece of paper off the very top. And we take this bread in our hand and we remember that Jesus gave his body as a sacrifice. So let's take, eat, and remember Jesus' body.
And you peel that second layer away to get the juice. To remember it was Jesus' blood that gave us restoration and gave us victory. And we drink this today remembering that God gives us the nourishment that we need to follow. He gives us the nourishment. To lie down in rest. That's the posture that Jesus calls us to during the season. The posture of rest. That he takes care of it all and we can rest knowing he supplies us with what we need. See, that was a beautiful part of the story of the Israelites and the manna. He built into that formula a day of rest. That on Saturday, they would get enough for the Saturday and Sunday so they could have a day of rest. God always builds in our schedules rest. He builds in these places that are difficult, these transitions. He builds in rest. And so today as we drink this, remember that God says, you can rest knowing I'm going to take care of these details for you. I will get you to where you need to be. I will satisfy your needs. I will get you to the place that you say, you know what? I don't fear anymore. I don't. Maybe I did before, but I don't fear anymore. So let's take this remembering the deliverance Jesus gives us.